Let's take our uh, Bibles this morning and open to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, and we're going to see three separate passages this morning. And uh, I beg your pardon on that, but this is the only way I know to share these names with you is to uh, move around a little bit. So Hebrews chapter 10, we're going to look at verses 26 through 31. We've discovered over the last uh, couple of weeks uh, the, the personhood of the Holy Spirit and that he is a he and not an it. We've also discovered last week just who he is in that he is the third person of the Godhead and therefore he is God. In our sermon on the personhood of the Holy Spirit, the personality of the Holy Spirit, we referenced his names because a name indicates personhood. And we shared these names as a part of that uh, kind of in a proof text manner. And we've listed those 10 names and I've included them for you. This will be twice that you've gotten those. And so the encouragement is that you go to Luke chapter 11, verse 13, and understand the context wherein he is called the Holy Spirit, and go to this passage, or Hebrews 10, 29, and understand the context of why he is the Spirit of grace, and so on and so forth. Uh, for me to do that in sermon format, uh, we would be here for uh, probably three weeks, three Sundays, and uh, I did not want to do that, so we are going to study today three names of the Holy Spirit that I feel it's imperative that we must embrace. Three names of the Holy Spirit that we must embrace. So if you're there in Hebrews chapter 10, uh, verse 26, would you stand with me? You're standing in reverence to the reading of God's Word. We're probably good if I turn there as well, and then we can read it together. Beginning in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. For if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation, which shall devour the adversaries. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much more sorer punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace. For we know him that hath said... Vengeance belongeth unto me, I will recompense, saith the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. Verse 31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. I'm going to pray for us now. I ask you as I pray that you pray for me and specifically without any jest at all that you pray for this system that we're using so that this microphone would settle down and we'd not be distracted. Because I believe today's sermon is important. And so you pray and I'll pray. Father, we thank you again for this day. 
And Lord, we're so grateful for the encouragement that you provide to us uh, through brethren. And Lord, I'm grateful for that. Lord, I'm thankful for the time that we have to come here and worship in word. I'm thankful for our subject today, the blessed Holy Spirit of God who indwells every born-again believer who is present this morning, who will uh, give an opportunity, illuminate for us these passages and uh, plant them deep within our heart and give us uh, knowledge and understanding and wisdom and will grow us in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord. Father, I'm thankful for him. I'm thankful for every believer. I'm thankful for every person present today. And God, I pray that you would work in our hearts. I pray that you would help us to see and establish these truths. Lord, I pray that you would challenge and charge, change, convert the sinner. Lord, I pray you would consecrate each and every one that hears today. Lord, we love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. I want to spend a little bit of time today on the three names that uh, spoke to me as I have prepared for this study. The first is uh, he is called the Spirit of Grace. The second is that he is called the Spirit of Truth. And the third being that he is called the Spirit of Promise. This is why the Lord brought these three uh, to the top of my thought and to the top of my mind. It is that without the grace of God, you and I would be eternally lost. And it is without the truth that God brought his son, uh, we would be eternally lost. And it is that without the promise of the Holy Spirit, we would be eternally uh, wondering, fearful of what the future holds. And so I believe that these three are very uh, important to us. Uh, this passage that we looked at, this Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 through 31, you'll note that he is called the spirit of grace in this passage there in verse 29, uh, that uh, unholy thing which hath, that he hath done despite unto the spirit of grace. And this is talking about the concept of denying the Lord Jesus Christ or disobeying uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. And how much worse will the punishment be for that, that one who shed his blood for us than it was for those who would fall short of Moses' law, the law of God. And so we want to think about this concept of the spirit of grace. And this is the comment that I would give to you uh, to, to bring that to a thesis statement. It is that we have been granted and may receive the grace of God by the spirit of grace. By the spirit of grace. The Holy Spirit creates in you a union for that the Father and the Son can be uh, in you and with you. And by the Spirit of grace, we may receive the grace of God. Some folks have misinterpreted this passage. I, I don't know that we have any here that would have been brought up in this manner. But if you were, I want to speak to it momentarily uh, sometimes they misinterpret this passage and one other in the book of Hebrews, and they misuse them in order to um, 
support an erroneous belief that you could be saved and then be lost again. Uh, that you could lose your salvation. It would almost seem to read that way if we didn't know better concerning hermeneutically what the scriptures teach us. It would almost seem to be that way because it says if we sin willfully after we've received the knowledge of truth, there's no more sacrifice for sins. And so they would, they would clasp onto that or glum onto that and say, see, you could be saved and be lost again. But that's not what the passage is teaching. In fact, that, that really is, is foolishness because in order to be saved, you have to be born again. And you can't be unborn. Once a thing is born, it's born. And it cannot be unborn. And uh, the Bible tells us that when we're born again, we receive eternal life. And eternal means eternal in every language that is spoken. It means forever. And so it could not come to an end. So for that purpose, we would say that it, that it doesn't make sense. But from contextual purposes, if we would look at the context in which these verses are given, we would better understand their purpose and, and the purpose that uh, the penman had for giving them. The context is anchored in the theme of the book of Hebrews. And this is the theme of the book of Hebrews. Very simply, Christ is better. Christ is better. He is a better prophet. He is a better priest. And he is a better propitiation or a better sacrifice. He's better. He's better than Moses. He's better than the angels. He is better than Melchizedek. His blood speaks more volumes than the blood of righteous Abel did. He's better. He's better than every sacrifice ever burned at the temple. He's better. He's better. He's the fruition of all of those things. They all find their finality in Him. There was never a law that was written that was not intended to bring you to Christ the Savior. There was never a sacrifice performed that did not point to Christ the Savior. There has never been a priesthood whose job was to do anything other than mediate between God and man. And Paul tells us in Timothy, there is one God and one mediator between man and God. Guess who it is? The man, Christ Jesus. He's better. That is the purpose of the book of Hebrews. So when we understand that that is the purpose of the book of Hebrews, then we would understand that here is talking about sacrifices that have been given. Then we would say, okay, well, who is the audience? Who is the book of Hebrews written unto? Well, that's been very clearly explained to us. It was written to those first century Jews who had begun to walk in Christ and they were caught between the two. They lived in the shadow of the temple there in Jerusalem. They understood the priesthood. They understood the sacrificial system. They've been brought up in the sacrificial system. They have been told all their life that you must maintain this religious system in order to please God. But they have also been moved by the Holy Spirit of God to understand that Christ was the Messiah and that he died for their sins. And there has been the genesis of birth in their life, new birth. And they are now uh, walking with the Holy Spirit of God within them and still maintaining temple rites. The book of Hebrews is written to them to prepare them 
for what would happen in 70 AD when the temple would be destroyed. It was written to remove them out from under that religious system to show them you do not need a priest because Christ is the high priest. You do not need a prophet because he is the last prophet. What is the first verse, the first three verses of the book of Hebrews? God who in the times past and sundry matters spoke by prophets hath in these last days spoken unto us by his son. He's writing to them to say to them, break away from that religious system, embrace Christ who was given unto you by the spirit of grace. So here the penman is sharing with them every time. I'm going to paraphrase this very loosely as if they were from Georgia. Every time you go over there and slaughter that goat, you are willfully sinning against Christ because he was the final sacrifice. That's what he's saying in this passage. But what we comprehend as we recognize that he is saying to them and we should comprehend the dangers of a religious system when it supersedes the relationship. Right? You hear these folks talk about uh, they may claim some, you know, I don't like Baptist. I hear that occasionally. Uh, sometimes I hear, I used to be a Baptist. It's always in condescension, uh, you know, as if they, they learn something better. I shared with a, a fellow pastor the other day who is a Baptist who does not have Baptist on his title uh, because, he, you know, for obvious uh, reasons that we've noted lately. I told him, I said, well, I want you to know I am a Baptist. I'm unapolog- unapologetically a Baptist, and I am a Baptist because it is a doctrinal position, not a denomination. Right? So that denomination, that baptistic system should never supersede my relationship with Christ. But it should define and support a biblical relationship with Christ. And anytime a religious system supersedes the relationship, you have a problem. And so we can, from a, an application of today, say, oh, I comprehend what was going on in first century Jerusalem. I comprehend what was happening there. I see what the writer of the book of Hebrews was trying to establish. And so I would take that today in application and say, I don't want a religious system to overrule or supersede my relationship with Christ. That's one application. There's another way that we can look at it, though, and we've begun doing this with some of our studies lately. We can look at some concepts that are established concerning willful and continual sin. See, that's a more direct application. Because you and I probably are not going to fall prey to a religious system. We, We have been taught better. But we're all walking in the flesh. We're all contending with the flesh we may very well fall prey to willful, continual sin. And so when we read this passage that says to them, if we sin willfully after knowing, after receiving knowledge, there's a problem. We can see some concepts develop there. And that's why I want to talk to you this morning about this particular part of the spirit of grace. What do we understand concerning continual and willful sin? Well, the first thing is to know and to not do is willful sin. Did you hear me? 
Paul would say, I think it's Paul that says, to him that knows better and does not, it is sin. It's the same statement. Uh, here, uh, the, the penman of the book of Hebrews is saying this willful sin is a problem. And I'm telling you that anytime you know what is right, you have received knowledge and you willfully do wrong, that is sin. That cannot be changed by societal definitions or cultural declarations. It is sin. If the Bible says one thing and you do uh, Opposing to that, that is sin. You knew it and you did it. It is willful sin. This is the second thing we know. If you're living under the law, this is what you hear a lot of times when people who are living in the age of grace, which we're in now, and they are willfully sinning against the law of God, they will refer back to the law of God. This is the problem with that. When you're living under the law, the law offers no mercy. That's why Christ would say, if you've broken one, you're guilty of them all. There's no mercy. There's no mercy in the law. According to the law of Moses, when the law of Moses was in place, if you broke the law of Moses and two or three witnesses do it, you paid the penalty commensurate with breaking that particular law, which most times was stoned to death. There was no mercy in the law. Guilt was guilt and guilt was judged. Where there is no mercy, there is no grace. Only condemnation. And the judgment for those sins, the, the penman here, uh, de, he compares it to the statement that says, uh, God says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. And so what we understand is that willful sin is a direct uh, opposition to God. And he is going to be the judge of it. Not some system. Not some pastor. Not some stuffed shirt Christian. God himself. We spoke in Sunday school this morning about developing an eternal perspective. What is the eternal perspective? I'm going to stand before the throne. The Bema seat if I'm born again, the great white throne if I'm not. One of those is a place of reward. The other is a place of condemnation. If I stand before the Bema seat, it says there that those things done in my life are going to be judged and the good things are going to be purified and the bad things are going to be burned away. And then it very clearly says, Paul says, some people will be saved as by fire because everything except for the salvation will burn away. I don't want to be that guy. I simply don't want to be that guy. I, I couldn't buy an endorsement like Doc just gave me, but it thrills my heart to get one of them because I'm hoping one day I'll hear something like that from the Bema seat. Well done, now good and faithful servant. And so from an eternal perspective, I know I'm going to stand before him I, without a doubt. I know I will and I want to do all I can to have some form of, of purified works in that moment. But... Those who sin against him, it's going to be the vengeance of God. And then he, he closes that passage by saying it's a fearful thing. It's a frightening thing. It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands, uh, to, to, to uh, be the judgment of God, to fall into the judgment of God. 
So in the midst of that, those are the practical applications. And you say, well, that's not what I wanted to hear. I wanted to hear about the spirit of grace. Well, in the midst of all of that practical application, we have the mention of the spirit of grace. And it is like a, a cool breeze on a hot day. It is like a, a sip of water when your mouth is parched. It's, it's like a nap in due season. It is refreshing because we're thinking about these willful sins that the flesh is committing and the contending of them and how the spirit and the flesh are contrary to one another. And then the Holy Spirit of God says, but there is the spirit of grace. And we're reminded in a moment, that Christ has promised salvation by grace through faith, which is received in the person of the Holy Spirit, that literal spirit of grace indwells us. He is the spirit of grace. I want you to notice next the spirit of truth. And if you want to turn, we're in 1 John and if you don't, I'm going to read it, and, and it's not a lengthy passage, so it's completely up to you. 1 John chapter 5. In 1 John chapter 5, uh, verse 6 through 12. Here we're looking at this concept of the spirit of truth. And let me ask you while you're turning there, have you received the spirit of grace? He's there for the reception. Repent and believe the gospel. You'll receive the spirit of grace. Here in 1 John uh, chapter 5, verses 6 through 12, John speaking to us, he says, uh, this is he. He's, he's just mentioned in verse 5 that Jesus is the son of God. Then he said, this is he that came by water and blood. Even Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit that beareth witness, because the Spirit is truth. There you go, there's our word. For there are three that bear witness, bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, Holy Spirit be more appropriate, and these three are one. There's your support for the Trinity. And all three are identified there in one verse. If we receive the witness of men... The witness of God is greater, for this is the witness of God, which he hath testified of his Son. He that believeth on the Son of God hath witness in himself. He that believeth not God hath made him a liar, because he believeth not the record that God gave of his Son. And this is the record that God hath given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life. He that hath not the Son of God hath not life. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Those are all definite articles. There is no other way. There is no other truth. There is no other life. Eternity sets for us, before us, two destinations. One of those is eternal life. One of those is eternal death. One of those is eternal communion with light and love and God. One of those is outer darkness forever, eternal separation from God. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And if we don't believe that, we are saying, God, you are a liar. That's what this passage says in paraphrase. Now, 
when we think about this passage, another tremendous passage, and it makes the point for us that we talked about last week about the association of the Father, the Son, the Word, and the Spirit. It also uh, affirms for us the Trinity or the doctrine of the Trinity. Secondly, this passage testifies to the fact that Jesus Christ is the only begotten of God and that in him is eternal life and eternal life is to be found. Also that he was approved of and witnessed unto by God at his baptism. The dove descended and the voice of God said, This is my son in whom I am well pleased. At the cross, he shed his blood, satisfying the wrath of God, appeasing the wrath of God. There at his baptism, uh, he witnessed unto God, or he was witnessed unto by God. There at the cross, he appeased the wrath of God with his own shed blood. And so again, we have to consider what is this epistle about? Who is it written to and what is the purpose of it? And I don't want to go too far here because we have purposes this morning, but Dr. Wearsby, Dr. Warren Wearsby states there's five purposes of the epistle of 1 John. This is good. I would recommend you write this down if you can write quickly. If not, see me afterwards. I'll give it to you. In 1 John, this is what 1 John establishes. First, that we might have fellowship. Second, that we might have joy. Third, that we might not sin. Uh, fourth, that we might overcome error. And lastly, that we might have assurance. Chapter 5 is the assurance chapter. It opens this chapter with the truth. If you look at chapter 5, verse 1, Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. How do I become born again? Believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That is how it opens. It opens with that truth. And it concludes, if you want to look over there, I'm not going to turn over there, with three different statements about the things that we know because of this relationship with him. It is the chapter of assurance. It will assure you. This relationship is expressed and witnessed unto in verse 6 by the indwelling spirit, and the spirit is truth. This is true of all who believes. Now, if you are not born again, if you do not believe, and he speaks to that uh, there, and we read it, but he that believeth not God hath made him a liar. Because he believeth not the record that God gave his son. The, the question that you would ask, have you believed the record of God? That's the question you should ask of yourself. Have I believed the record of God? Do I believe that Christ was the Son of God? Do I believe that Christ was virgin born? Do I believe that Christ died on the cross as me, for me, and in my place? Do I believe that Christ was dead and buried three days in the tomb, rose again victorious over death, hell, and the grave? Do I believe that Christ is returning one day in bodily form to take his church home? Do I believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God? If you don't believe those five things that I just listed for you, you need to determine whether or not uh, you want to go to heaven. <laughs> those are fundamental facts. They're fundamental truths. That every believer, every born-again believer agrees to. They're fundamentals of the faith. I just saw uh, some kind of clip the other day. I don't know. It was some sort of a 
conference or something, there was a speaker, and uh, the speaker, uh, the, somebody in the audience challenged the speaker, and the speaker asked the, the young lady in the audience, are you a Christian? And she said, yes, quite declaratively so. Yes, I'm a Christian. He said, very well, do you believe the Bible? She said, no, I have news for you. I have news for her. She's not a Christian. At very best, she is an ignorant, uninformed believer, but I don't even know how she got there without believing the Bible because the word of God is God. Here we have this, this picture of those who do not believe. He says, if you have not the son, you have not eternal life. That doesn't mean that you're not eternal, by the way. It means that you have eternal death. If you have the son, you have eternal life. If you have not the Son, life is not in you. You have eternal death. And that is what you'll inherit. I thought about this this morning. Someone could argue, well, I think I am a believer, but I don't agree with all those things that you just said. Well, there, you could be someone who made a profession of faith without ever experiencing a possession of the Holy Spirit. And thereby you become a parody of a proper Christian. And in doing so, you positioned yourself for failure because you're trying to live in a world that you don't belong. You don't fit there. You're different than other people that are in that world rightfully. And, and you are fueled, you are always doubtful, and you're fueled by every paradigm shift of an ever-changing culture, and you're pushed about by every wind of doctrine. And you're always asking yourself questions like, why can't I find a church that I agree with? Why can't I fit into a church family? Why don't I get along with other believers? Why can't I embrace the truths of the scripture? And you can't because you are carnally opposed to those truths because you have yet to receive the spirit of truth which is given to you upon your profession of faith and your salvation. You could be that and then decide one day that you were just wrong, but you can't be unborn. You're always born. Here, this passage speaks about the truth of God, and the question would be, am I resting in the truth of God? And uh, I think sometimes I have, I have friends, and I think sometimes this concept of rest is, is, is stressed and, and maybe not completely understood, because rest doesn't mean that I never have any questions, and rest doesn't mean that I never have any concerns, and rest doesn't mean that I never endure any difficulties. Rest means, uh, as the disciples would say to the Lord when he said, will you leave me also? They said to him, where else would we go? No one else has within them the words of life. So I'm, I'm sure the disciples were, Peter said, not so, Lord. <laughs> and then denied him 
But where else was he going to go? There was no other place to go. And so he was resting in that truth. And I would ask you this morning, are you resting in the truth of God, which is received in the spirit of truth? Lastly, the spirit of promise. Look with me at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 11 through 14. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11 through 14. In whom also we have attained an, an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will, that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ, in whom ye also trusted after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. Wherefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all saints, cease not to give thanks for you. I want you to see that, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession, the spirit of promise. In the first 10 verses of, of Ephesians chapter 1, the writer uh, shares uh, with us uh, all of the blessings that we have from the Father. In fact, we could look at the entire book of Ephesians as a letter written unto the church at Ephesus who were believers, and they were proper believers, and Paul was writing to encourage them and exhort them, and he was writing to those believers concerning the blessings of the believers and the behaviors of a believer. The first chapter speaks directly to the aspect of blessings. We believers have in Christ, the blessings that we have in Christ. In the first 10 verses, he talks about how we have the blessings from the Father, and then from the Son, and then finally from the Spirit. From the Father, he would say that we have been chosen, we have been adopted, and we have been accepted. From the Son, he would say that we have been redeemed, we have been forgiven, and we have been enlightened as to what God's will is, and we have been given an inheritance. And from the Spirit, that last verse that we read, we have been sealed and we have been assured with an earnest, the Spirit of promise. The sealing and the earnest are both components of the Spirit of promise, and they're both valuable aspects of our new life. What does it mean to be sealed? Well, uh, I love this because there are uh, factual meanings and then there are meanings that we can say this is true too, but I can't exactly uh, point you to a place. The factual meaning is, this is what the Amplified says, and I think it describes for us uh, uh, something of days gone past that we don't completely understand now. The Amplified says it this way, We have been stamped with the seal of the long-promised Holy Spirit. It is, uh, for lack of a better term, a stamp, a seal of approval. It is uh, referring to the signet ring, the way they would conclude business. And we, people who are born again, have been stamped, sealed. We have been marked by the Holy Spirit of God that we belong to Him, that we are his. That is not particularly something that you and I can see, but it's something that he can see. 
And it encourages us that when he looks at me, he doesn't remember that old hard-headed one. He remembers that one. Oh, he's stamped with the seal of the Holy Spirit of God. He's mine. He's sealed unto the day of redemption, another place would say. It is a mark of ownership. It is an impression made by authority. If we were cowboys, we'd think about a brand. Burn it on that cow. That was mine. That's got the lazy S. He belongs to me, right? Uh, if we were cars, we'd think about a registration number, that VIN number. Tells you who it belongs to. Here, the fruition of this concept is a seal or a declaration of ownership and belonging and approval. And once he seals you, he places his seal upon you, and there is no doubt unto whom you belong. That is a promise of the Spirit. You're marked. He also talks about the earnest. Uh, there he speaks about the earnest and... Uh, that earnest is, is interesting. I want to share one other aspect of sealed with you, and this is one of those that I would tell you some people would argue with me on, but I, I believed it all of my young life, and I think that I'm on good enough ground to share it with you. When Noah built the ark, he pitched it within and without. The pitch, the word for pitch was, uh, I think, kafar maybe, but it's basically the word atonement, and it points to the atoning work of Christ on the cross and the ark was actually a picture of Christ on the cross so that all who were in the ark were sheltered from the wrath of God. They went through the wrath of God. They're a picture of those people in there, or a picture of born-again believers, but more appropriately, they're a picture of the nation of Israel going through the tribulation and coming out on the other side. And he pitched it within and without, which is a tar-like substance, but this is what it did. It sealed it. <laughs> it made it waterproof, storm-proof. Wrath proof. And so everybody that was in it was sealed against the day of judgment. And everybody that has the spirit within them are sealed against the day of judgment. Sealed. The earnest is a promise. Partial payment. We all understand this concept very well. If you make an offer on a piece of real estate, uh, your offer is determined valuable based upon the earnest money associated with it. Uh, the bigger the earnest money, the more serious they believe the buyer is, and they're more, uh, uh, more likely to do business with them. It is a down payment against the finality of the transaction concluding. Now, I want you to understand me very clearly right here because I heard a man say this wrong one time, and everybody in the county called him a heretic, and I'm not sure he is. He is a hairy tick, but I'm not sure he's a heretic. Uh, at any rate, uh, Christ has not made a down payment on your soul. He bought it. He's made a down payment on the form you are in right now. And he's saying to you, I'm going to redeem you fully. I'm going to finish the job when the day comes. And that's what that earnest money is. What I know is because of that mark, when he returns, he's going to know I belong to him. He's going to take me with him. What I know because of the earnest money is because of the peace and the love and the fruits of the Spirit that are present in my life right now, those are earnest of all that is to come. And the songwriter would say the half is yet to be told. 
as much as God has done for me in this old carnal body that is racked with the opportunity to die any day. Uh, he's going to do more than that in glory. He has given me a earnest, a down payment of redemption. And when the day of redemption comes, I am sealed until the day of redemption. He will complete the job and I will no longer be in this progressive sanctification state. I will stand before him glorified in my eternal body. The songwriter said, blessed assurance. Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of the Spirit, washed in His blood. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior. Why? Because I am indwelt with the Spirit of grace. I am indwelt with the Spirit of truth. And I am indwelt with the spirit of promise all the day long. This is my story. This is my song. Would you stand with me this morning? Your hands bowed and your eyes closed. Three very direct questions and an appropriate response, I hope, from you. Have you received the grace of God? If you have not received the grace of God, repent and believe the gospel. Christ died for you as you in your place. He is God and he wants to be the Lord of your life. Repent of your unbelief. Quit being your own God. Let Christ be God of your life. Have you received? Are you resting in the truth of God? Well, how do I get there? Repent and believe the gospel. The same gospel that saved the sinner sanctifies the believer. And you ought to preach the gospel to yourself every day. I am what I am, Paul said, by the grace of God. Have you, are you resting in the truth of God? And lastly, have you realized the promise of God? Well, how do I get there? Repent and believe the gospel. He said all that believe will be born again and the spirit will indwell them. I don't know your need this morning, but I know a great Savior who can fulfill every one of them. Lord, I pray you'd bless this time of invitation. In Jesus' name. The altar's open today. If you would, you come. Oh.